Hey, everybody. Hey. I'm, Renee, why do you have earphones on? Are you listening to the game or is there something that's just too loud or what's going on? <laughs> okay. Um, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. We're really glad that you are here this morning. It's Christmas time, everybody. Did you know that? Yeah. It's Christmas time, uh, which is a really cool, cool deal. And so what we're going to do is um, we're going to talk about the first Christmas. I love to go through what is referred to by theologians as the birth narratives or the infancy narratives. But um, uh, Christmas is, is, people have different things that happen with them on Christmas. For some people, it's a very, very sad and dark time. And frankly, um, this year for so, so many people has sort of been a sad and dark time. Most people, can anybody sort of testify to that? You'll be glad to see 2016 go. It's just not, for some people, been the greatest time. Not that something magical happens at the beginning of the year. It's just that time where we say, okay, let's try this again. Um, but it's the, the very first Christmas, the first century of Palestine, is, is one of those times where it's, it's a very dark and discouraging time for the Jewish people. They are actually under an occupation by a, another government, by a Gentile government. And to them, because, this, because the Roman government has come in, and has uh, taken over their country, and an occupying army is ruling over them, and they are not anymore a sovereign nation. To them, that is an indication that God has forsaken them. And we actually live, they lived in a time where they had been promised that God was going to send somebody to be a redeemer. And if you look all through the Old Testament, it's, it's sort of the whole theme of the Old Testament. Um, you know, it's just, when, when you read the Bible, from Genesis up to the point where Jesus comes, it's just frankly mess after mess after mess after mess that people get into. Um, because they rebel against God, because they're not listening to God, their relationship with God is broken, and over and over and over we have stories of just the people that, you know, some Christians consider to be heroes of faith, but like you talk about King David, people are like, yeah, King David is a man after God's own heart. And he commits adultery, and he kills the, his uh, mistress's husband. And it's just all these crazy, crazy things that constantly happen, mess after mess after mess that families get into. And we are at the end of the Old Testament. God gives the Jewish people a promise. It's, it's found here in Malachi. This is the very last chapter of Malachi, where God sort of gives this, this little hint that someone is coming. He says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness. This was a euphemistic way to say there's going to come somebody that's going to bring back, is going to bring back things and make it right. Things that have been so, so terribly wrong. I'm going to send somebody and he's going to restore and redeem things. The son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. Somebody's going to come to heal all this mess of your lives and he's be looking for him. And then after this was written, for 400 years, nothing. First century Palestine is a time where the people, have, people are wondering, where is God? We haven't heard from him. Where are all the promises that, uh, that have been made to us that there's going to be restoration and redemption? It looks to me like things are getting darker and worse and worse and worse. Where is this promise of a redeemer? And so as we look through these narratives, as we look through these Stories that have become, become commonplace to some of us. 
I want you to remember that the entire purpose, the thing that uh, I, I want to sort of, that's why we call this an off-filled Christmas. Some of us are used to having an off-full Christmas. But this, we want to bring back the wonder and the awe that perhaps we had when we were children. I know my kids, when they were very young, they were just, the thing I loved about it was they were so filled with wonder and awe. I remember here, my son sitting over here, I'll use this opportunity just to embarrass him a little bit. One of my favorite things that he would do at Christmas time, or frankly, any time he got a present, he, you know, said, here, Caleb, this is your present. He's this little bitty guy, and he would always say, is that for me? Just over, we have this video where he's constantly present after present. Is that for me? We're like, yes, son, it's for you. Just open it. We got things to do. But there was this wonder and awe at this particular time of year. And I think many times we, we lose that. We, we live in a, in a time where uh, we, we like to figure things out. We like things to be cut and dried. We like things to be black and white. But as we read these narratives, we're reminded that there's a supernatural God who understands where we are in our most discouraged and most dark place. And supernaturally, he brings light and revelation and understanding into our situation. And he's always pursuing us. And the, the end result of Christmas is God is with us. Emmanuel, Jesus, comes to reveal who God is and to show us that God is still there and he always pursues a closeness and a relationship with us. So... And this is what is happening here. Here in Luke is in this very, very dark time, an angel appears to Mary and says that the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Very similar to what we see in the very first part of the Bible where it says the earth was without form and void when, when God had created the earth and it was awful and destruction and darkness and that the Holy Spirit was overshadowing the water. Luke picks up on that same theme in the New Testament. So just like God created light out of darkness, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, will be called the Son of God. And then Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, has this to say about this particular baby. She says, because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven in this dark and despairing time that they're in, this time when they haven't heard from God, when it seems God is far, far away and does not care at all about their life. She says, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us in the path of peace. This is the purpose of Jesus' coming, is to give revelation and light or understanding as to who God is and what God's Love and care and concern for us really is. Because people did not think that God was there for them anymore. And the Apostle Paul sums it up this way. It says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light over and over. Light, light, light. Such a dark, dreary time in first century Palestine. He gave us this light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. In other words, and I say this all the time, the way that we understand who God is is we look at Jesus. Paul is trying to sum it up in one verse that the way that we understand, the, the way we have a knowledge of who God is is we don't just wonder who this sort of ethereal being is. You know, well, I think God is sort of like this, and this is what happens so much today. Well, I believe, you know, God is this force and this oneness and this energy throughout all the universe. Well, perhaps... 
But Jesus comes and says, really, if you want to know what God is like, my face is now here. I'm not far off. So many people think, think of God as a far off being who is hard to get to know, who is hard to reach. But Jesus comes, and the whole purpose of this Christmas time is Jesus says, really, I am a person that is for you. I'm a person that cares about you. I'm a person that sees you. And I've come to live exactly like you. So I can relate forever and for eternity. I'm going to identify with you. And the cool thing about it is Jesus, he, is, he doesn't come as this person who is a, a knight in shining armor. He doesn't come as this person who would look like he would be the king or look like he would be someone special. In fact, the Isaiah, prophet in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus came, he said this about Jesus, my servant, talking about this Messiah, that this, this redeemer or savior that would come. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender shoot, like a root in dry ground. Now notice, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his presence. Nothing to attract us to him. Jesus was normal. If you passed him on the street, you wouldn't go, whoa, now that guy, he's going someplace. He's that Man, look at that guy. He's good looking. That strong jaw. You know, he's just like a superhero type of guy. No. Isaiah said, no, he's, he's normal. You'd pass him on the street. You'd bump into him and just go, oh, excuse me, and move on. He came to identify with the outcasts. He came to identify with the poor. He came to identify with those that religion had decided you're not worthy to be in our presence. There was nothing beautiful, nothing special, nothing that you go, wow, I want to be like that guy until you actually got to know him. His physical appearance, he came to be born just a baby in a very humble, a very poor place. Now, what I'd like to do, and I changed a little bit from the first service so I can get to a little bit more of it this week, and then we'll continue it next week as well. We might even talk about it some tonight in question mark if you have questions. Is I want to look at, uh, starting in Matthew, the birth narratives. These are the stories of how Jesus was born. Now, almost everybody I know gets it wrong. So, what I want us to do, first of all, if you're here and you are a Jesus follower, I want us to be able to understand the basics of how our leader got to come on the earth and the sequence of the events and why they're important and what they mean. I want us to also be able to answer questions. The, the disciple Peter, in writing a letter to the church, said, you need to always be ready to give an answer or to give a reason for the hope that's in you. And so many times we as Jesus followers are ill-equipped when someone that would consider themselves a skeptic or an agnostic or an atheist or somebody that just simply has questions to answer their questions in an intelligent way. We should understand why we believe what we believe, the basics of our faith. So this will help us with that. And if you're here um, and you, you're sort of maybe kicking the tires of faith, you're just checking this out, not sure about the, the whole Jesus thing, um, we're so excited you're here because that's one reason that we started this place so you can come and ask certain questions because these birth narratives, if you talk to people who are skeptics, who are atheists, agnostics, there are certain things in these that, that those people will use, questions they have, to say that the scriptures must not be correct concerning Jesus because of certain discrepancies or unanswered questions that the church historically has not been able to answer that caused them to sort of, it causes sort of an obstacle to them in their faith. And so I want to go through these, discuss them, and answer those questions. 
I think it's going to be fun. I love to do that. So let's do that. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy. This is where I always make the joke. It's my favorite subject, genealogy. Ology is the study of. My wife's name is Jeannie, therefore, the study of Jeannie. Come on, that's a good one. Come on, I, I'm working hard here. But this is the genealogy of Jesus. Now here's, here's one of the first things. If you begin to talk to somebody that knows their stuff, and they'll say, yeah, you know the story of Jesus coming to earth as a baby and him being born of a virgin. It's really made up. It's something that the church came up with much later in time to sort of explain how he got here. And one of the things that they will use are the genealogies in both Matthew and Luke in the fact that they differ, that there are discrepancies between them, and there are mistakes, in their view, in this Matthew genealogy. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the Bible through, and you have all, in the King James Bible, it'll be, you know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and they begat, and they begat, and you fall asleep, and you, what are all these begats for? Well, there are lots of reasons why they are there. It's not just to take up space. It's not just to annoy, annoy you while you're reading through the Bible. There's a purpose in them. One of the purposes that's interesting to me in the genealogies of Matthew, genealogy of Matthew, is so interesting to me that he lists people that aren't necessarily the, the most wonderful human beings that you would think that a holy man would be in his ancestry. At least two prostitutes are mentioned in the, geology, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. Tamar and Rahab. It's an interesting story that from the beginning, even in the genealogy, Matthew is pointing out once again that God is a restorer. God is a redeemer. This redeemer's coming. Even his family history is a story, which that's what the Bible is. It's a story. It's a story of redemption and uh, being restored and achieving more than what your life had planned for you. But in these, just, just to bring this up so, so you'll understand, in Matthew, Matthew is going to give, a, I'm not going to read them all today, but Matthew is going to give a genealogy, and there are gaps in his genealogy. If you go back and study, there'll be, he'll skip generations, and people will say, see, there's mistakes there in the genealogy, because, as we'll go on and see here in just a minute, but here, here's something I want to point out. Also, sometimes there are mistakes in genealogy in our view. Now, there is an uh, attitude that's called anachronistic, which is ascribing the values of modern day to ancient times. And there are certain things that we value as human beings in the 21st century that they did not value in the first century. We want things to be precise. We want the I's dotted. We want the T's crossed. We want everything to be exact, or we have to correct all this. Not so much in the first century. They're just trying to get a general point across. It's, a, it's actually a culture of orality where they pass things on, much like the Native American culture would have been in the United States for hundreds and hundreds of years. When you have a mainly illiterate society, the, they tell stories, and the community stewards those stories. But if you're allowed to adjust the story from time to time to suit a particular thing, point that you're trying to get across. Matthew, in, in telling these genealogies, will sometimes uh, say that this person was the son of so-and-so. And people will say, oh, actually, he was actually the grandson of so-and-so, so see, that's a mistake. No. Uh, this says this is the record of the ancestors of 
Jesus the Messiah, a descendant. This is the NLT translation. It actually says he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's using it in a sense that he's simply a descendant. Jesus wasn't the son of David. He was simply a descendant of David. So simply because somebody is listed as the, says they were the son, but they're actually the grandson or the great-grandson, isn't a mistake. It's simply what Matthew wanted to point out at that particular time. I see you guys don't care about that at all. Now, go, go to verse 17. It says, all those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah, who is Jesus. Once again, critics will point out uh, there were more than 14. There were like 17 in some cases. Matthew doesn't care. Matthew wants you to remember 14, 14, 14. He's using, it's almost like a phonetic way of you re remembering what the genealogies are. He doesn't care that there were 17. He wanted to point out a few to show you that Joseph actually came from the royal line of David. I could actually, believe it or not, talk about this for about another hour, explaining all the reasoning behind the genealogies and how in Luke, Joseph's father is called Heli, which was actually Mary's father. And so people point out again, well, that's a, that's a mistake. No, it's actually not, because sometimes the father-in-law was considered just as much the father. And Luke has a different purpose in explaining his genealogies. And you guys stopped caring about five minutes ago. But it's important to know that it's not like in the 21st century. It's the first century where they have a certain purpose. Matthew is speaking to the Jewish people. He wants, to know, wants you to know Joseph, who adopts Jesus, basically, he came from the royal line of David. Therefore, Jesus is, in a sense, the son or the offspring of David. Luke, who's speaking to a Gentile audience, takes the genealogy, not going backwards and then to Jesus. He starts with Jesus and goes backward all the way to Adam to show it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not. Jesus actually goes back to Adam and everybody's from Adam. Therefore, Jesus is for everybody. Capisci? How many of you, frankly, do not care at all? Come on. Thank you very much in the booth. I see that hand. All right. Let's go, let's go on to something that may or may not be more exciting. Um, okay, now this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. Gather around, boys and girls. Uncle Mark will now read to you the story of the first Christmas. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. Engagement in those days was a legally binding relationship. They were betrothed. They had not come together and had sex yet, but Joseph has proposed. Mary has said yes. Joseph is supposed to then go work on the household. Mary's supposed to get all her stuff together. And then later, usually about a year later, they will get together. So they are simply engaged. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, guys, okay, guys, just listen. Joseph is a regular person. These are real-life individuals, real-life humans. Joseph would think exactly the same thing that you would think. If you were engaged to this girl, and you knew that you and her haven't hooked up here yet, and suddenly she's pregnant, and her excuse is, well, it's actually the Holy Spirit. Joseph thinks the same thing. He ain't buying it. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man. 
It's one of the highest praises that I give to somebody. I, I love it when the Bible calls somebody a good man. He was just a good man. And he did not want to disgrace her publicly, but he ain't buying this Holy Spirit pregnancy story. He thinks that Mary's been stepping out on him. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, I want to just stop right here because in our modern 2017 almost uh, mentality, many times even Jesus people sort of have the idea that, uh, you know, we're sort of on our own to figure this out and we, we have science and I thank God so much for science and we have uh, technology. Hey, we have Google and, you know, we have the Internet, we have, we're in space, we're thinking we're going to try to go to Mars, and we have all these things that are very natural and very physical, and we know that they work. And so we dismiss many times the supernatural. But here, this is a reminder to us here at Christmas time that there is an influence and there is a guidance that goes beyond what we can figure out ourselves. And time and time again as we read through these stories, even in a dream or certain circumstance happens, God is behind the scenes, overseeing the entire thing, and it's a reminder to us in our own lives, no matter how dark it seems, no matter how bleak, no matter how things are going wrong, in a moment, a dream, an idea, a chance meeting with someone, something somebody says, God supernaturally speaks to us. It's not just something we read about in a book. In, in, in this dream, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, said, Joseph, son of David, see, Matthew's pointing out to his Jewish audience, even in his dialogue. He's the son of David because the Old Testament said that the Messiah would come from the house of David. The angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Listen to me, Joseph. She's not just saying that. It's the truth. I think Joseph, you know, we give all the credit to Mary. Oh, Mary's this wonderful person, which I'm sure she is. But I think Joseph's a hero for going, okay. I buy that. We'll do this thing. Come on. The first time and only time ever, the abstinence did not work. Here we are. Joseph says, okay. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Very, very common name. Historians tell us, and I don't even know how they know, that the name, it's actually in Hebrew, it would be Joshua or Yeshua in Hebrew, but it's Joshua. Very, very common name. That that was the sixth most common name for boys in first century Palestine. It's not something extraordinary. For he will save his people from their sins. The name Joshua means the Lord will save. So, all this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. This is Matthew stepping back and saying, okay, Jewish people that are listening to me, all this happened because of something Isaiah said. It says, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means, and this is the whole message that we come back to time and time again, God is with us. The whole point of Jesus coming. But I want to just stop here a minute and point something out. Once again, um, I believe that our main mission as Jesus followers is to share the message with people who are non-believers. And in our particular culture, people are... are uh, have certain obstacles, certain things that are hindering them, and they have questions. And many times Christians are giving answers that uh, are, are sometimes not complete and sometimes incorrect. And here is something that happens at Christmas time. This, this is a, a very famous verse. I think this is Isaiah 7, 14. 
I didn't look it up. But this is Matthew quoting to his Jewish audience that says Jesus being born this way is, was predicted by Isaiah. That the virgin will conceive, will give, a, give him a son. Now, many Christians will say that this is a prophecy. They will talk about there's lots and lots of prophecies or predictions in the Old Testament that Jesus is going to come and do such and such. And in a way, that's sort of true. Actually, what Matthew is doing here is a, is a first century rabbinical practice called Midrash. And what Midrash is, is the Jewish teachers of that time would, in order to explain or teach about something that was going on in their contemporary society at that particular time, would reach back into the Old Testament scriptures and pull a verse into the present time to sort of explain this is what's going on. This verse, if you're ever talking to somebody that's a non-believer, many of them will say, that verse in Isaiah isn't predicting Jesus. And they are right. In Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Israel who are going through a really, really rough time. And he says, uh, a virgin, and many people, people that know this will tell you, the, the Hebrew word in Isaiah 7.14 isn't virgin as in one that hasn't had sex. The word is simply young maiden, young lady. Has nothing to do with her sexual history. It simply means a young lady. A young lady will conceive and will bear a son. The son that Isaiah is talking about to the people of Israel is, uh, comes to pass in the king Hezekiah. Hezekiah is born and brings Israel back, restores their relationship with God, and brings prosperity and order to the kingdom once again. In fact, even in Isaiah 9, 6, where it's another famous Christmas verse, it says, For unto us the Son is born, unto us the child is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. That is Isaiah. Not, Isaiah's not thinking about Jesus. Isaiah's thinking about this child that is about to be born, Hezekiah, who once again, and this, he brings restoration to the relationship with God and brings abundance and prosperity back to the people. Isaiah, when Jesus is born, in order to explain it to the Jewish people, reaches back to this story that they know and says, you know how Hezekiah was someone that was raised up for a particular purpose to restore relationship with God? That's sort of how this is with Jesus being born. And the fact is, she really was more than just a young maiden. She was actually a virgin. That's an amazing, amazing thing that God is doing. It's not necessarily that Isaiah had that in mind when he wrote it. It's Matthew reaching back and saying, this is what actually happened. Just like it happened with Hezekiah, this is what's happening with this guy named Jesus. He has come to restore relationship with God. So Joseph has this dream. And when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Now notice, it says he did not have, anytime the Bible talks about sex, I have to stop and talk about it. It just keeps me interested, frankly. But you guys just, you act so holy or something on Sunday. I know you guys are having sex. You don't have to sit there and look so, I don't know, I'm just, just thinking of Jesus right now. When I read through the Bible and I see, wow. They didn't have sexual relationships. Let me point this out, the reason I'm talking about it. He didn't have sexual relationship with her, just the guys now. What's the next word? 
until her son was born. What happened after the until was over? Game on. Come here, give me five. Right there, game on. And the reason I want to tell you this is so many times we have this holy attitude about the people that are involved in things that happened back then, especially Mary. And there's a doctrine that Mary remained a virgin her entire life. Well, the truth is that the New Testament tells us that Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. Four brothers. I forgot one. I couldn't name the four in the first service. I missed James. How can I miss James? James and Joseph and Simeon. And now I can't remember the other one. Joseph and... I don't remember. I can't remember. Huh? You got me? You want to Google? This always reminds me of a story, but I won't tell it. Well, I'll tell it real quickly. My mother was a bank teller for years and years, and there was this guy that came in to talk to her every now and then, and he may not have been the brightest guy in the entire town, but she was asking him, you know, how's your brother Joe doing? This guy's name was Robert. Hey, Robert, how's your brother Joe doing? He said, oh, Joe's doing fine. And he says, you know, there was four of us brothers. There was Joe, and there was Pete, and there was Sam, and it's Joe, Joe and Pete. Well, maybe there's just three of us. He said, <laughs> forgot himself, Judas. Judas was Jesus' brother, not Judas that eventually portrayed him. Jude, of course. Jude, James, totally lost my mind. Okay, you guys aren't interested in Joseph's sex life, so we're going to move on. Now, verse 1, here we go. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Another interesting side thing, we place the two time periods as B.C., or A.D. Now it's B.C.E. and A.C.E., current era. So, but Jesus was not born at zero or one. He was actually probably born around six or seven B.C. The calendar is off a little bit. Herod dies in four B.C. He had to have been born, as we will see, probably at least two years before Herod died. So Jesus was born six B.C. or so, six or seven born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing. Let's stop and uh, I'll go on and, and read this next verse. Some wise men from the eastern land. Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. A couple of things. We'll eventually find out that this story right here is not happening at the birth of Jesus. When you see the wise men at the nativity, don't get mad, don't steal them or anything, but the wise men were not there at the birth of Jesus. But the question is, who are these wise guys? And why are they there? In the, in the Greek, when it says wise men, it's actually the word magi. Magi is sort of short, where we would get our word magician. Okay? So why, who are these people from the east over around where Iraq would be nowadays, is where they came from? They're traveling to see this new king. They think there's a new ruler that has been born because they saw a star. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but why would these people that are supposedly wise, and they're actually astrologers. If you study the, uh, the history of it, they're astrologers. They're the scientists of their day. They're the cosmologists, if you will. They're looking at the sky. They understand the constellations. They understand how they move. And all of a sudden, there's something different happening in the sky, and they notice it. Why did they go, oh, I bet there's a new king in Judea. Let's go. Why would they do such a thing? 
Well, I'm going to give you a possible reason why they would have done that. In, in uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before then, the nation of Israel was taken captive by the Babylonian Empire by a, a leader named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar came in, sacked Jerusalem, uh, sort of destroyed the temple, <clears throat> and led the Israelites, the Isra Israelis, the Jewish people, away to the nation of Babylon. Among those people was a young man named Daniel. Daniel, you probably heard about Daniel in the lion's den and all those things. But an interesting thing happened. Daniel was selected with some other of the Hebrew boys to be schooled in all the natural knowledge that the Babylonians had. They were very advanced for their day in science and uh, astrology, cosmology, all these different things. And as time went on, there, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream. And he calls all the magicians and all these wise men, the ones that are supposed to be the smartest guys in the land, that's why they call them the wise men. They're supposed to know stuff. And he says, I had this dream and I want to know what it means. And all the Babylonian wise men said, sure, we'll tell you the interpretation. You just tell us what the dream is and we'll let you know what it is. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is a little too smart for that. He says, you can tell me anything you want if I tell you the dream. I tell you what, you tell me what the dream was, then I'll believe that you can tell me what the interpretation was. And they're like, uh, king, nobody can do that. What's up with that? He says, well, if nobody can do that, what good are y'all? I'm going to kill y'all. So they were really scared. It's like, I'll give you 48 hours. I don't know if that's what it was, 48 hours. I'll give you a certain amount of time. If you don't tell me what my dream was, off with your heads. So they got really nervous, and Daniel found out about this, and he goes to his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, we need to pray. And so God supernaturally shows Daniel the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed, and what Daniel interpreted the dream actually came to pass. Actually came to pass historically. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar promoted him. Here in Daniel chapter 2, then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon as well as chief over all his what? Wise men. Daniel becomes the leader of the school that trains the wise men. Okay? Now, an interesting thing happens to Daniel several, several, several years later. Seven chapters later, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel gets this vision or this dream. And an angel, interestingly enough, the exact same angel that eventually appears to Mary and says, you're going to have a child and he's going to be the anointed one. That same angel speaks to Daniel hundreds and hundreds of years before. And this is sort of hard for us to understand. In our, it talks about a period of 70 sets of seven. The Hebrews were really dramatic and they had a flair for the um, you know, the, dramatic, and they would say things, instead of saying 490 years, they said 70 sets of seven. 70 times seven years, 490 years. It actually ends up being about 69 sets of seven, which would be 483 years. Whew, I know it's confusing. What the angel basically says, go, go to the next verse, basically says to Daniel, in 483 years, from the time the command is given to, re to rebuild Jerusalem, this command hasn't been given yet. They're in captivity in Babylon. The king eventually, uh, this is actually past the time of Nebuchadnezzar, um, King Cyrus is eventually going to tell them, you can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. From that time, start counting, around 480-ish years, the anointed one comes. 
Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses and so off, despite the perilous times. And notice this. After this period of 62 sets of seven, it's hard to explain all that, but it's, it's about 480 years, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. That's Jesus. He was killed, and everybody's like, well, that's over. It looked like Jesus was a complete failure. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. That happened in 70 AD. This is a prediction hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus that Jesus is going to come. He's going to be killed. It's going to look like nothing happened. Shortly after that, the temple and the city is going to be destroyed. All of that came to pass in the first century. Why in the world would the wise men show up? Because Daniel gets this revelation that in about 480-ish years, there's going to be an anointed one that's going to come. In the other verses that we didn't talk about, it says that he's going to put an end to your sins. He's going to uh, bring restoration to your relationship with God, basically. He's telling these magi then in class, I'm going to be dead, but we have to pass this on as a teaching in our schooling to be watching about 480 years from now, there's going to be a new king that's going to uh, be in Jerusalem. That's why the wise men went to Jerusalem first, as we eventually find out. So 480 years later, they're watching the sky. Suddenly there's a new astronomical event, and they're like, whoa, it's right on time of what our founder Daniel said. Let's head that direction. Well, it's not just down the street. They don't have a Humvee to get across the desert. They have to get on camels. It takes a while to get there. Anyway, let's go ahead and see how far we can get here. King, I think that's really interesting, by the way. But that's why the, the wise men came. You never knew that. You guys came in here not knowing that. Now you're leaving with more information. It's not only fun, it's educational. Okay, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this as was everyone in Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem because the prophecy was about an anointed one in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and says, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they said, in Bethlehem, in Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. Matthew once again goes back and says, this is what Micah, this is actually from the book of Micah, says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. So then Herod called, and I'm trying to hurry because their time is running out. Herod called for a private meeting with these wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. He conducts an interview. Uh, when did you first see this star? We don't find out right now when they saw it. But Herod's interested, how long have you guys been traveling? When did you first see this? Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. When you find him, search carefully for the what, by the way? Child, not baby, child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go and worship him too. Herod has a very vested interest, since he's the king, of knowing if there's another king, I can wipe this king out in infancy before he gets to take his throne, Herod is trying to use the wise men to find the location of this king. After Herod, by the way, was married to a Jewish woman. So he had a belief in the supernatural. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they'd seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the what? Where the child was. When they saw the star, and I'm skipping over a bunch of stuff because I want to get to a place. They were filled with joy. They entered the what? 
Stable? Cave? Manger? Mm -mm. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures, chests, and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They had three gifts. There weren't necessarily three wise men. Nowhere does it say there were three wise men. Could have been 57. It could have been two, but they had three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had once again warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Oh, there's so much I can need to talk about here. The, we may have to talk about it next week. The Lord, uh, angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Okay? Here is where, and this is the reason I want you to know it. Give, give me just a couple minutes to let me get to this because I want Christians, I want us to be informed. Here is something that atheists use to say these birth narratives are made up, they disagree with each other. Get up right now. The next verse. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary's mother. Because Christians have postulated that this happened at the birth of Jesus, everybody thinks that that night after Jesus was born, Joseph has warned, go to Egypt with Mary and his mother. So he did that. He left for Egypt with the child and, with the child and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. 4 BC. This fulfilled what the, and I will talk about that. Now, here's the problem with that. When we read Luke's account, something happens in Luke's account that makes what just happened impossible if indeed the wise men were there at the birth of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, and we'll talk more about Luke next week. In Luke chapter 2, there was, then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So the parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Forty years, according to the law, in the Old Testament, 40 years, 40 days after any mother had a firstborn son, 40 days afterwards, she has to take that son to the temple and give an offering and present this child before God as a thanks because of this child she's, she's been given. The trouble is, and then notice this next part. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. The problem is, if Joseph and Mary got up the night that Jesus was born and the wise men came and headed to Egypt and stayed there until Herod died, how were they able to be in Jerusalem 40 days after his birth to present him in the temple? Everyone you talk about, talk to, that, has, that is skeptical, has questions about the Bible, if they're serious, they'll bring this up. The reason it's not a problem is because the wise men were not there at the birth of Jesus. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Forty days later, they present him in the temple for the purification offering. Then they return to Nazareth. Okay? It's, we know that it's about two years from the time that the wise men first see the star. And that Jesus is probably about two years old when the wise men come. 
because after the wise men don't report back to Herod, Herod goes and has all the babies that are in Bethlehem killed from the age of two years old and under according to the time that the wise men said they first saw the star. They saw the star at the birth of Jesus. It takes them a year and a half, two years to get there. It's two years later that they are in the house in Bethlehem when the wise men come and then they go to Egypt. The purification offering had already happened a year and a half ago. There's no uh, discrepancy. Now, this is the last thing. I'm going to let you go. Some of you don't care, but some of you will actually say, oh, that's really wild. The problem with all of that is if they gave the purification offering 40 days after the birth of Jesus and then they returned to Nazareth, why were they in a house in Bethlehem two years later? You know what I mean? See, I want to get you to think because non-believers think this way. Because you say, well, no, that was, you know, he's 40, 40 days later. He was just 40 days old. Then they went back to Nazareth. But actually, in Matthew, they were in a house in Bethlehem when the wise men came. Why were they in a house in Bethlehem? I'm going to tell you why. And then we can go home. This is how they got back to Bethlehem. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. How often did they go to Jerusalem? Every year, every single year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival. Joseph is from the town of Bethlehem. That's where his family is from. Mary wasn't turned away from an inn. They didn't have room in the family guest house. Joseph has family there. Anyway, they return, they go to Jerusalem. There's no reason for them to stay in Jerusalem every year because of this map right here. On this map, I wish I had my pointer. You can see where it says Judea there. Just up from there is Jerusalem. Five miles south of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. They come back to Jerusalem for the festivals year after year, and they're staying in the house of their relatives in Bethlehem. Nazareth is way the heck up there by the Sea of Galilee. It is almost 90 miles. No, it's 90 kilometers. Something like 60. You guys convert kilometers to miles and you'll see how far it is from Nazareth to Jerusalem. That is a big, big trek. But they are back in the house in Bethlehem because each year they go to Jerusalem, they have family in Bethlehem, and that's where they're staying when the wise men show up. Most of you don't care, but I think it's an extremely, extremely cool thing that there are not discrepancies. Over and over and over again, the writers of the four Gospels are proven to be historically accurate in what they say. If we can believe them there, we have no reason not to believe that they indeed were telling the truth when they say, this man, Jesus, is who he says he is. All right, I'm going to pray for you in just a second. Before you leave, um, it, we, we talk about the Connect card at the beginning uh, just to get to know you. You can also use that Connect card to communicate with us if you have a prayer request or you have just a story that you'd like us to know, we'd love to hear about the story of what's going on in your life or why you came to Stonebrook or how you came to Jesus. Plus on here, you can make a decision uh, to follow Jesus, to become a volunteer, renew your relationship with Jesus, ask about baptism, and you can put that along with any offering you may have. We certainly appreciate your giving. We thank you so much for that in the bucket as you head out the door this morning. Be here tonight. 
6 o'clock, just, we're just going to hang out. It's real informal. Bring some cookies or chips if you want. And uh, we're just going to ask and discuss any questions that you have, mainly about God, Jesus, and the Bible. And if you need prayer of any kind right now this morning, you need somebody just to talk with you, just to listen uh, and pray with you concerning any, anything at all, um, this is Khalees, and this is Eric, and they are up here to the right of the stage. Just after service, you can come up and talk with them, and they would be just overjoyed to pray with you. So let me pray for you in general. We'll get you out of here, and uh, on with your day. Father, we thank you so much for everything that you're doing in our lives. We thank you that you sent Jesus to this earth to become one of us, and that truly he is Emmanuel. You are ever pursuing us. You are God with us, and we thank you. We give you praise for that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday, guys. See you tonight for question mark and back here next Sunday, um, the last service before Christmas. Have a good week.